0: Hello and welcome everyone to our podcast about the tremendous buy-sell market we've been going through in the auto industry. And we're going to talk with a couple of experts about the buy-sell market, about the tremendous ride that has happened, and we're going to hear about their insights into the market, into preparation for selling, and other important topics. So today we are welcoming Brian Eagle's and Kimberly Linebarger, both of whom are from Moss Adams. Rianne is a tax senior manager who's been in public accounting for more than 15 years, and she provides tax and consulting services to auto and RV dealers. Kim is a senior manager who has over 15 years of experience And she does valuations of dealerships, including for mergers and acquisitions, estate, gift, and also even litigation matters, uh, shareholder disputes, et cetera. And welcome to both of you.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: Okay, so let's get right to it and start with you, Kim. What a wild ride it's been. This has just been the most tremendous market I've ever seen, and I've been doing this for quite a long time. 2021 was just a tremendous year for buy-sell activity. Do you think this will continue, and has it continued in 2022?
1: Yes. For instance, even at the end of April, Automotive News has already listed 60 transactions with 2022 close dates. Given that the lag in reporting of transactions, this number is most likely going to be higher. Of course, we have seen some cooling in the markets as the onset of the conflict in Ukraine happened, and we've had volatility increase. The end of April, we've marked a lot of increases. The often quoted VIX index just closed over 30, which for historical standards, anything above 23 is a very high indication. Tim,
0: you mentioned the VIX index, and that's something that may be beyond the understanding of some of our listeners. What is it? What is a colloquial description? Why do you rely on it? And what impact does it have on valuations?
1: Yes. So the VIX index, it's a key measure of expectations for near-term volatility that is derived from option prices. And how we consider that in the valuation world is that often a higher volatility marketplace is going to be driving higher discounts for actual buy-sell transactions. So higher volatility, less transactions taking place, and also those transactions that do take place often take place at lower price points. Indication of what's going on.
0: What do you think was driving this burst of activity first in 2021 and driving into 2022?
1: It's being driven in 2021 by high levels of capital, but also pent-up demand from 2020 and the scare that happened with the onset of the pandemic.
0: Pent-up demand, are you talking first about consumer demand and then demand for ownership of dealerships? And how do those connect?
1: When I talk about demand there, I'm talking about pent-up demand of actual buy-sell activity. So the first half of 2020, that really slowed down a lot. And even there was indications of sales that were put on hold when the pandemic first hit because people were scared that we were going to be falling back into what happened when the Great Recession hit, which really hurt automotive industry a lot. And it took many years to recover from that. And so everybody put some hold on the buy-sell market. As the second half of 2020 happened, it was clear that we were not going to have the same impact. And buy-sell, demand, everything started back up. And it has continued into 2021 and now is continuing into 2022.
0: This accelerated by a lot the consolidation in the industry. What are some of the things that will drive the continuation of this? Or do you see hurdles to the continuation of this market?
1: I see that 2022 will still be driven by high levels of capital, also high profitability at the dealership level. And also, as you just mentioned, the necessity for consolidation in the industry. The consolidation that's happened has led to a lot of larger groups. The publics have increased their footprint, but also in the private space as well.
0: Well, we're going to talk about some of the hurdles later in our program. But in the meantime, how is this? working for RV dealers. They're part of the auto sector that we all deal with all the time. Are they having the same sort of boom right now?
1: They have had a very similar boom. Of course, there are fewer of them. And so not as many transactions, of course, but there is a increase of consolidation and a very active buy-sell market in the RV dealer space that we've seen since the second half of 2020 and leading into 2021. I haven't talked about the concerns that we're seeing on the buy-sell market, but there are differences between our RV dealers and our light-duty
0: dealers. And what are those differences?
1: One issue that I'm watching very closely right now is the increase in interest rates. This impacts a dealership in different ways. One, it's impacting their customers and their ability to have volume, so sell those new and used vehicles. And it also impacts the actual transaction prices in the buy-sell market. Now, that impact is often felt in the larger dealership groups because they are often bought and sold in leveraged transactions, but when we... We're talking about the customer aspect of it. That will impact your RV and power sport dealers a whole lot quicker and faster because their items are far more discretionary in nature versus our light-duty vehicle dealers.
0: The light-duty cars are, you know, an average of maybe twenty to $30,000, whereas RVs are as much as $300,000, right?
1: The price point and just the nature of the product.
0: Right. And they're entering into long term interest bearing agreements that are for quite a lot of money. So I I get what you're saying. Let's turn to you, Brian, for a moment and start to talk about structuring a dealership and preparing for a sale when a dealer is considering the market that we're in. Considering the the forces that are causing consolidation, what is best for a dealer to do in the near term in preparation for entering that buy-sell market?
2: So one of the most important things, and of course, I recommend this for dealers ongoing every day, no matter what, but it becomes incredibly important if they're considering a sale. And that is making sure that they're maintaining a very clean balance sheet. Those old items sitting up on their balance sheet are ultimately going to end up impacting their multiple. And having those things cleaned up from the beginning and maintaining that is always recommended. And that comes down to cleaning up. Is there old accounts receivable that's not collectible? warranty receivables? Do they have obsolete parts? Do they have old factory incentives sitting up there that aren't going to be collected upon? And making sure that this isn't just being done at year-end, because that's often what most dealers do. It's not cleaning this up on a regular basis. It's waiting till year-end. But understanding that your transaction can happen at any point during the year, and the buyer's probably going to want to see a trailing 12 months. And you're going to want to feel confident that your schedules are clean and that your balance sheet is really representing what's actually there. And you don't have large adjustments to those balances coming through to ultimately arrive at your net income that is going to be used to drive your multiple.
0: Those really are great housekeeping tips, but let me interject something. I apologize. One thing that we haven't really spoken about is that part of what's driving the market are the high consumer prices of vehicles, the high profits that are being generated by those huge grosses. And These sorts of housekeeping tips for corporate governance and corporate management are obviously things that you're absolutely right, should be done every year, every month, every week, all the time. But they're very hard to do in such a hot market, I think, especially for some of the smaller dealers. Do you have tips for how to get some of these things done?
2: I absolutely agree. It is a very tough thing to do, and especially when your accounting staff is more than likely overwhelmed and you're, you're dealing with high volume, but it's so important that I do think that if the owners can often express how important these things are to the accounting staff and to the staff as a whole, it's a lot easier to Motivate them to do these things and holding them accountable. So a lot of this comes down to owner involvement, right? The more involved they are, the more they're looking at that. They're not just looking at it year end; that they are looking at the financials on a monthly basis. It holds everyone a little more accountable. And while it always is a challenge, it always is something that I think every dealer, like I said, is always striving toward. The more you do it, the easier it gets, and the more it just becomes part of their everyday, and it's less of a challenge going forward. But absolutely. Getting it started, getting it moving is definitely a challenge.
0: The tone has to come from the the top. Absolutely. I suppose the tip is that if it's a habit, it will happen. And if it's not, it's going to be a big mess when it comes time to preparing. Agreed. So let's say that somebody has been doing these things. What sorts of adjustments or bookkeeping or accounting methods should be put in place to best prepare your balance sheet for a sale?
2: So one thing that we see quite often is fixed assets are being depreciated on the books with a tax method. And we have had very favorable tax depreciation rules now for several years. So for the most part, if you're using a tax method for your books, you have very little or zero net book value in the assets that are sitting on your books. So what we will often suggest is getting your fixed assets on a book depreciation method rather than tax. So it more accurately reflects the actual value of the assets. Usually the buyer is willing to pay net book value. And if you're showing net book value at zero, it's really discounting the value of those assets. And it really does not reflect the actual value of those assets. Adjusting your books to more of a gap depreciation life for your assets can be really helpful. Just getting those books correct, going into a negotiation rather than having to clean them up during the negotiation.
0: Recommend that dealers use GAP. Many dealers, as you know, do not. And they they use whatever the accounting standards are that are preferred by their manufacturer?
2: Most manufacturers are good with depreciation methods being on more of a gap. So usually for equipment's 10-year life, for leasehold improvements, 40-year life, for computers, those types of items, five-year life. So in using straight line, most manufacturers are fine with that approach and actually prefer it to the tax method. Because like I said, the tax method really ends up discounting those assets way too quickly and doesn't accurately reflect their value.
0: What are other things that a dealer might consider?
2: So looking at whether your management salaries are on the books, looking at if you have multiple stores and you have management salaries on one store but not on other stores, the buyer is going to be looking at that and wondering how that impacts their ultimate net income that their store is going to generate. So if you don't have management salaries on the books, but they are going to have management salaries on the books, they're going to be looking at it as worth less than what you're looking at it as. So understanding things that are ultimately going to impact your multiple. So owner salary is another big one. Do you have a centralized accounting function where certain stores are taking a larger brunt of the accounting fees and other expenses than the other ones? Are you paying rent to yourself? Do you own the property as well and you're paying rent to yourself as something other than fair market value. All of those items are going to be considered in coming to, again, that net income piece that your multiple is going to be applied to.
0: You tell us a little bit about minimizing tax liability within these structures you're talking about. What are some good tips in that regard?
2: So one of the really basic things that always comes up in a purchase is the allocation of the purchase price between goodwill and fixed assets. So this is a pretty minor one, but one to always think about as the seller, you're going to want more of the proceeds to be allocated to the goodwill rather than the fixed assets. And the reason for that is that the gain on the goodwill is going to be taxed at 20% for you. But then anything allocated to the fixed assets, any gain generated on the fixed assets, is more than likely going to be taxed at ordinary rates because of the depreciation recapture rules. So the more you can get it allocated to goodwill, the better. The buyer is looking at that from a different perspective. The buyer is going to want less allocated to goodwill and more allocated to fixed assets because they can depreciate those fixed assets Sometimes in the year of purchase, they can expense the whole thing, whereas the goodwill, they're going to have to depreciate that over 15 years. There's always tension between the buyer and the seller on the goodwill versus fixed asset allocation.
0: So that is something that's often negotiated. The interesting thing is that it does seem like it would create a lot of tension. I always find that it ends up being resolved pretty easily by the business people. I'm not sure there's a good reason for that. Is there a good reason for that?
2: I think because ultimately, when we're talking about the difference between the amount that's being allocated, we're really talking about pretty small dollar amounts. Typically, in most dealership settings, the goodwill is worth so much more than the fixed assets that while this is a topic, this is a negotiation point, the actual real dollar impact of it is fairly small.
0: thus making it easy for cool heads to prevail and arguments to cease on that tension. But it is a good description of the tension because that is one of the points of negotiation that we always face. Let's talk about cash. What do you do with cash analysis as part of these deals?
2: So doing a full cash out analysis is really important. Often dealers go into these negotiations without a real understanding of what they're going to walk away with. And so having their CPA walk through exactly what they're going to end up with after all liabilities have been paid, after all of your taxes have been paid, and that's federal tax, state tax, everything all encompassing, what are they going to walk away with? I've had dealers who have done this analysis and decided not to sell. And the reason being that they see how much they're going to walk away with. It's not quite enough to make it worth it for them to sell. They're better off staying in it longer, seeing if they build it up, get a higher multiple later on. So it really is a good decisions tool. The ones who go into selling without doing this, without fail, are always surprised with how much cash they end up with in the end. There are things they don't consider, whether it be the LIFO recapture, whether it be the depreciation recapture, these other items that they may be missing by just looking at their assets and liabilities and assuming what they're going to walk away with.
0: That's a great point and so important for dealers to do. I think they should also do a comparison given that they're selling for a multiple of some kind, typically at least in their head, that's what they're doing. If they are going to be making that amount of money for five years, seven years, eight years, but that's the amount of money they're coming away with. Part of the analysis, I suppose, has to be how long do I want to stay in this business versus... Exactly. So let me ask you, is there a difference in your advice when dealers are considering selling to a family member or a key executive in the dealership group? Because that happens frequently as well.
2: It does. It happens a lot and it is a completely different conversation, a completely different approach. We could probably have a whole separate presentation on this topic because it is a pretty big topic and there are a lot of things to consider. But at a high level, understand that rather than focusing on maximizing your multiple, maximizing the amount of cash you're getting out today, you're much more focused on the future success of the dealership. Their success is your success. And so you just have a completely different approach. And this is where Kim often comes in with her valuation expertise. You know, if you're selling to a family member, often you're looking at selling it for less than market value. So we're looking to see are there ways to incorporate discounts, uh, whether it be lack of marketability discounts or minority discounts to get the value lower. So that way you're selling it to your family member at an amount that you're comfortable with and they're comfortable with. If you are considering this type of transition, I recommend establishing a plan. That's often where we see dealers struggle is by not actually getting a plan in place and not only a plan, but an executable plan that there is some accountability behind because otherwise years and years will go by and nothing has happened. Everyone knows that's the eventual plan, but nothing has actually happened. So having a timeline with achievable goals that everyone is aware of, everybody is part of the plan can be very helpful in driving the plan forward. Mentorship is a key part of any type of succession plan, whether it be to a family member, or to a key member of management. And I would also suggest getting the manufacturer approval process established or started as soon as possible, as soon as you've identified your key person or your family member, getting that process started. It's similar and different for every manufacturer, but it's not an easy process typically. And so getting that, it's not something you can do overnight. So definitely starting that process as soon as you've identified somebody is important
0: that. And a lot of dealers look at their succession planning and they think they have it in mind. But as you mentioned, and I'll just, you're so right about manufacturer approval. And just to highlight that it can be something that takes time. Manufacturers are virtually required to approve a succession plan. So it will happen unless you nominate somebody who has felonies or something crazy. But it does take time and it is something worth focusing on. But I want to really highlight one of the things that you said, which is that when you have a plan, there should be a timeline and strategy for implementing that plan. Otherwise, it tends to drag on and perhaps not happen at all. Now, one of the things you talked about is how valuations are different, important, and impactful on the various scenarios. So let's go back to valuation with you, Kim. We were talking about different issues with regard to valuation, and I thought perhaps you could expand on some of the issues that are going on in the industry now. We have chip shortages we have supply chain issues, we have war in Ukraine that, at least it was a surprise to me, has impacted a lot of the parts that are being used on vehicles. And we have incredible pent-up market demand for vehicles. How are all of these things affecting your valuation analyses?
1: Yes, even just a couple months ago, people in the industry were thinking that maybe 2023 we'd have a return to normalized supply and demand inventory levels. As soon as all these parts and the supply issues work themselves out, we're still going to have the demand issue because all of those vehicles that are going to be produced, there's already – pent-up demand for and just drags it out further and further the longer that the supply issues continue. Now, the war in Ukraine has impacted not only increased timeline to return for the semiconductor industry and the microchips, but also wire harnesses. There was a lot of parts that were coming out of that area of the world.
0: You're pointing out these supply chain and other problematic issues may last into 2023 and beyond. And even if they're resolved that we're going to be left with meeting demand that already happened and is just being fulfilled. So this could drag on for a while. But doesn't that mean that some of the gross profits that are being made will continue into 2023 and keep the market hot and prices high? Or am I wrong about that?
1: That's exactly correct. You are not wrong. This has not been necessarily a detriment to the automotive industry. This is just basic economic forces. Supply decreases. Demand is higher than supply. You're going to have increases in prices and that has played out. Right now people are indicating an expectation that the supply and demand will continue to be not normal well into 2024. That means that gross profits would be expected to remain higher until that supply and demand starts to normalize. But the additional things to consider is that we are not finding that there is an expectation that those prices are necessarily going to return to pre-pandemic levels. There is an expectation that even as front-end profit, so that is your base product pricing will become compressed and we're already seeing a pushback from OEMs on our clients and sending out letters from some OEMs to have that pricing be more in line with msrp but you also have back-end pricing so your finance and insurance products and the industry is really indicating that those value-added products and that pricing and the increased in purchasing of those products is expected to continue this is somewhat connected to the fact that vehicle pricing is higher. And so people want to protect that purchase that they're making.
0: That's interesting that you note letters that OEMs are sending trying to control prices that their franchisees are selling for. And a lot of dealers are up in arms about it, but I know it is a tension among consumers, dealers, OEMs, and it is something that needs to be handled. But OEMs reaching out and trying to control prices is Probably not the best way for that to happen. One of the things that you and I talked about offline, Kim, is pricing of vehicles versus RV pricing. Do you want to expand upon that?
1: Yes, I just wanted to make sure that I noted that the product mix that our RV and dealers are seeing has really in the last couple of years moved to an increase in travel trailers, which have a lower price point. This really is that there is discretionary forces for the purchase of their vehicles versus our light duty. That's more of an impactor versus just the price point.
0: That is an interesting point and I'm glad you raised it. One of the last things before we go back to Breon, Breon mentioned sales to family members or company executives. Is there a difference in the valuation process and how you go about it when you're engaged in that sort of a transfer?
1: Yes, there are specific factors that will drive the valuation of a privately held company. One of those that is very key is the purpose. The purpose of the valuation is going to be a state and gift versus a purchase to a third party, a controlling interest most often that is going to a third party versus the gift tax reporting that would be driving a internal transaction.
0: Very interesting and important for people to know. Let's talk a little bit about consolidation. There has been a lot of consolidation that's been happening over a long period of time. It certainly seems to have increased over the last couple of years. And it sounds like from what you're saying, these same market forces will cause even more consolidation as we continue with attractive pricing for those wanting to sell that may move up their decision and with margins expected to slim in the future, that speaks to the benefit of consolidation. But given those market forces and the consolidation trend, is this market going to be left for only the larger players, the auto nations and Penske's of the world, or is this going to be a market where small groups can continue and thrive?
1: We have smaller clients that are very successful. I think that it will just become less and less of them. The pricing right now is driving an ability for these family-owned businesses to be able to exit and actually achieve their financial and non-financial goals, whereas before, the pricing just wasn't there. And I think Brianne mentioned cash flow, and that is exactly what I'm talking about. For those that want to be able to pass it on to their third generation or their fourth generation, there is still that non-financial goal of having it be still a family-owned business. And I think that most of those, you're going to have owner-operators that are very heavily in the day-in-day operations, and they will still be able to compete. It is becoming fewer and fewer that are able to do that in single-point Situations, when I say a smaller dealer, I'm talking about those that are anywhere from one to three. Even those smaller dealers are having to expand in some level and your single point dealer operations are becoming fewer and fewer.
0: Let's talk about multiples as dealers are moving to market their dealership. Most think about their brand in terms of a multiple. Let's talk about that or let me have you talk about that and the sorts of valuation methods that experts use and how those compare to multiples. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes, multiples, they're not technically considered a valuation approach. They are what we call rules of thumb. Now, We are in an industry where they are so prevalent that you cannot ignore them because they do impact the market. And it is how people consider when they are looking at the buy-sell markets. And so ignoring them is not something that you can do in this industry. When you consider the multiples that are out there, you will often hear, say, four to five times, pre-tax income. Well, it's pretty clear that four is going to give you a very different result than that five. And so while these are important to consider and think about, you do not want to necessarily apply them blankly without consideration of other factors to any specific company. So they give you some good information, but you really have to dive in and think about what is driving your dealership value. And would you be outside of that range completely? Or would you be closer to the four to the five? For instance, I have a client where I just wrapped up evaluation. They actually have a very low multiple, but there's very specific reasons why. They have a huge image upgrade that they've pushed out long enough that it has to happen in the near term. They also are in an area that has very low growth prospects. They just do not have that same growth as if they were in a very large metro area. And those are making it so that their ultimate multiple is much lower than it otherwise would be.
0: Describe the technical valuation and if we can make it simple and colloquial, how is it that you perform your technical valuation that you compare against the multiples?
1: Yes, yeah, we have three approaches to value. We call them the income, the market, and the asset approach to value. When we're looking at dealerships, these are often driven by cash flow. And so your income approach is your main approach. Right now, because we're in a non-normalized cash flow environment, we're going to be relying on what we call the discounted cash flow method. That lets us actually build out differences and expectation of cash flow in the short term before we get to that normalized level of cash flow.
0: All right, Brian, let's go back to you. Assuming all of these market forces have driven a dealer to make the decision to sell, and it's not a succession plan, it's a market sale, what is the best structure for a dealer to use and how should they go about selling their dealership?
2: So most of the time, almost exclusively at this point, dealership sales are asset sales. We do see the occasional stock sale still, but they're often pretty risky to the buyer. And I'm sure, Aaron, you would often recommend if your client is the buyer to not buy the stock because it comes with unforeseen liabilities and other issues that the buyer may not want to take on. We don't- that
0: right. I definitely... <laughs> never recommend for a buyer to do a stock sale. Although there are occasions where it does make some sense for a variety of reasons. So every case is different, but you're absolutely right.
2: We'll mention quickly, there are, like you said, some benefits to a stock sale for the seller in particular. So if you have a buyer who is willing to buy the stock, it can definitely be helpful. One thing, if you're on LIFO, and you sell your stock. That sale is not going to trigger LIFO recapture. So you're not going to have to pull that LIFO reserve into your taxable income in the year of the sale. So that can be really beneficial, but, Also understand that more than likely the buyer is factoring that into the price as well because they're buying the stock that has inventory and a LIFO reserve already sitting there. So they're essentially buying a piece of your, you know, deferred tax. Mostly with market sales, we're seeing just outright sales. We're not seeing installment structures. Every once in a while, we'll see some contingency based sale that typically is not in the auto space. That typically is in RV, motorsports, especially now where, you know, things are going really well right now. But especially in the RV and motorsport space, there's this fear and caution around what's to come, especially for any that were in the market and during the recession and how long it took to recover from that. They're pretty leery of jumping into paying based off of the performance over the last couple of years. So what we'll see sometimes is most of the proceeds are paid at the year of the sale. But then there's some type of sales target that has to be hit to get the next couple of payments going forward. So again, not seeing it very often, but it is something that I'm starting to see a little more as these two industries just keep trucking along and doing well, but there's the fear that it may not continue. we
0: have spoken a lot about the dealership operating entity. Real estate is also a heavy piece of all of these transactions virtually, whether there's a commercial lease or often a purchase of land. How does that impact the transaction and what do you see in that regard? We often see by the way that the real estate transaction can be bigger, sometimes much bigger than the dealership transfer, but what are you seeing?
2: Very similarly, the same thing. You know, when you're setting up your dealership, you'll most often be recommended that you're setting up separate real estate from the dealership. There are some buyers who aren't interested in buying the dealership if they don't also get to buy the real estate. That it is a 100% a package deal. You have to buy both. There are others who, especially the smaller buyers, who want to buy the operations now, but they can't buy the real estate yet. But they would like to in the future. So we've seen deals where they're negotiating for a future purchase option on the real estate if they can't quite pull the cash together to pay for the real estate today.
0: Brian, finally, what are the tax implications of allocation to personal goodwill versus goodwill for the company? And by the way, if you could at first describe what is personal goodwill and what is goodwill attributable to the company?
2: Sure. So a quick definition of personal goodwill, it's a portion of the goodwill that's considered to be owned by the owner directly. So it's an asset of the owner rather than an asset of the business itself. So you'll often hear us refer to personal goodwill versus the corporate goodwill. Where this comes into play often is if the dealership is a C-corporation structure. So it's not a pass-through structure, not non S-corp or a partnership, it's a C-corp. And where this comes in really helpful, if you were a C-corporation and you sell, and all of the goodwill is considered to be corporate goodwill, it all goes to the C-corporation, the corporation is first going to pay tax on the gain on that goodwill. So it's going to pay about 21% on that goodwill that it received. Then as it distributes out the cash to the owners in the form of dividends, it's going to get taxed again at the owner level at about 20%. So you you have that double taxation issue. You're paying about 41% on the gain coming through the C-Corporation. If you can pull out a portion of personal goodwill, what ends up happening is then that asset is being sold by the owner directly. It never goes into the C-Corporation. It's just sold by the owner directly. The owner then recognizes the gain only at the individual level. And so they are going to pay 20% tax. And I'm talking about just federal, by the way, not, not including state, 20% rate on the personal goodwill that was sold. And that never goes into the C corporation. So you're avoiding the double taxation of the portion of goodwill that can be carved out and be considered personal versus corporate.
0: Kim, let's go to you, how do we decide if we have personal goodwill in a transaction
1: We look at a lot of factors and a lot of it is more qualitative versus quantitative in this analysis. Although I did want to make one comment about the tax implications too. A lot of times that also will avoid the 3.8% net investment income tax because often those owners are active. So there really can be a lot of tax savings there. Going back to your question, when we are talking about light duty dealerships, one key point is that that franchise agreement itself And this is very unique for our light-duty dealerships. That franchise agreement itself is personal in nature. And we actually have, meaning Moss Adams, we've done our own research, and we have data that we can use to support that allocation to the franchise agreement itself. That's one piece of it. The second piece is just looking at what else does exist that's personal in nature. This might be driven by the name of the dealership being the same as the owner's or the owner's family might be where they've had the same name and it's a family owned name. There could be the name and likeness of the dealer being used in advertising that I've seen that a little less these days, but it still is there. And then also the owner being still very active in the day-to-day operations in the industry, in the local community? Do they still have an active participant role in driving sales? And then also, do they have an active role in the industry? The other key to think about is any pre-existing non-compete. While many states, these are really kind of hard to uphold. If there's a situation where one is pre-existing, then this often may not be something that we can go down the path of of going for The other thing that I want to make sure to indicate is that this really should be not something that you're thinking about last minute. This should be considered in the the LOI, and it needs to be specifically outlined in the asset purchase agreement. We also want to make sure that other factors are considered and that those are structured and thought about properly. If you're going to be going to market, you really want to take into account that your legal counsels. Your consultants on the accounting side, on the finance side, other consultants really should be involved from an early stage if you're really going to maximize your ultimate deal structure and make sure that you are achieving those financial and non-financial goals.
0: Let me ask you, Kim, a clarifying question. You mentioned non-competes and obviously you're talking about an agreement where the dealer has bought or sold and is restricted in where they can compete in their next dealership and that often is personal to the dealer, either the acquiring dealer, the selling dealer, et cetera. And that's what you're talking about. How does that impact the personal goodwill decision?
1: Yeah, I'm talking about pre-existing non-competes. Basically what it is is that's already restricting their ability to potentially take that personal goodwill and compete against the dealership that's being sold. So that's really going to restrict the ability for us to allocate to personal goodwill in the current transaction.
0: That explains exactly what you were saying. And thank you for that. That's all very interesting. And these have been very interesting issues. Thank you both so much for coming today to speak on these topics. And thank you, everybody, for listening today. That wraps up our podcast, and we'll see you at our next podcast.